<laughs> okay, Parsha Titzave. Let's go. For sure, put him on the board. Russia, Bas, Mer, Chaim. It's her yard site? Oh, wow. Her Rebbitzin. Okay, so we're going to do learning today. It's Rashi's yard site. So, Rasha, Bas, Mer, Chaim, right? Mer, Chaim. That's the Chaim of Chaim too. Really? Yeah. That's the what? No way. That's, That's the Chaim of Chaim Tzvi's name. Um, it's Chaim Mir. I know, but he... Oh, Chaim Mir. Okay. Let's change it. Let's have the right address for the Neshama. Chaim Mir. You guys related or something? That's the first... She's Levi's first cousin. Her name oh. is Rasha, not Russia. Like, and, and she was called Rashi. She was named after her grandmother. She was the coolest person on the earth. Want to give us one more sentence? Um, the cool, the truth is, how do you talk to the coolest person yeah, over here? That's really kind of just like an amazing person. Like she cared. Like, like when you think of like a Chabad Shinnach, like in my mind, she is like the pinnacle because she just was like there for everyone. And today's her yard site. So her neshama should have an aliyah, and she should in Israel she should be a good to better for her family and her people and all that. I don't know how you transcribe to better in English. It literally means to like advocate for them, but it sounds weird in English. It doesn't sound weird in Yiddish. Okay, so here we are, Parsha Tetzava. We're still continuing our conversation of the Mishkan, but more specifically, what do we have in this week's Parsha? First of all, Vata Tetzava. How many of you guys did? How many of you are like, oh, I know this Pasuk, right? <laughs> First line, we got this one down. Okay, we got this one. So what do we know about Va'ata Tetzava? What do we know about Parsha Tetzava? Olive oil. The first thing we're going to have is a commandment to create the oil for the menorah. Okay. Um, and what else do we know about Parsha Tetzava? They're commanded to make the, what's it called? The, 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 the yeah, we're going to get to the close in a second. We're going to get to the close in a second. But the other question specifically about Moshe and Parsha Tetzava, because if you already learned the Mimer, you already had this ten times. What do we know about? Motion. No. Huh? Parsha's Titzava is the only Parsha since Moshe is born in the beginning of Shemos that his name is not mentioned. Really? Is that not part of the, You didn't get that in the Mimer. Okay. He's not, he's, not he's not mentioned by name in this whole Torah portion. And because next week's Torah portion, when the Jews are going to sin with the golden calf, spoiler alert, um, he's going to say to Hashem, that forgive the Jewish people, and if you don't, erase me from your Torah. But when Sadiq says something, it's like, it's a big deal. So even though it was a conditional, if you don't forgive him, then, for, then erase me. But because he said erase me from your Torah, so then God's like, got to take his name out someplace. So one of like the cute sort of comments they have is like, so why Parsha Tetzavah? So they're like, okay, so last week was the story with the golden calf. So then the Hashem says, the angel, no, sorry, next week. Next week is going, to do, is going to be the Parsha, the story with the golden calf. So, so like that's when Moshe makes a statement, you know, don't put me in the Torah. Then, so the, God says to the angels, so should we, next week, we'll, we'll push him, we'll take him out of the Torah next week. And then the next week comes, they're like, we'll put him out, we'll take him out next week. We'll take him out next week. So Parsha Tisava is actually the last Parsha before we come back to Kisisa where he says, take me out of the Torah. Did that make any sense in English? Well, no. Chronologically, it's 
No, 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 no. Moshe is here. One second. Okay. First of all, I'm going to get to your question in a second. Did anybody understand what I just said or not at all? Totally. Okay, good. If enough people said I got it, then whoever didn't, ask me afterwards. Okay, chronologically, Amber, very good question. Where, where is Moshe right now? So the big chronological question that we have in general about the Mishkan is when did we get this commandment? Because as the Torah is moving its way through, right now we have, we're still talking about the original commandment, Hashem telling Moshe to tell the Jewish people. We don't have them doing it. That's going to happen in Vayakov But in Tzirum and Tzavah, we have Hashem telling Moshe all the details of the Mishkan. The next thing that we're going to have is the golden calf, okay, which is going to be our biggest debacle uh, in history. It's a good word, no? Um, and then we're going to have Vayakov where Hashem, Moshe is going to actually tell the Jewish people, and they are actually going to do it. So everybody, all the Mepharshim, want to know, when did we get the commandment to build the, to build the Mishkan? When did that commandment come down? Did it come, did it come, as some people will say, it's a response to the golden calf, that when Moshe comes back down after, you know, getting forgiveness for the Jewish people on Yom Kippur, he then tells the people about building a, the, building a home for God. So was it that the first, like was that when he got that commandment and it's a response and sort of a kapara, it's, a, it's an atonement for the golden calf? Or, or was it a command that was given to Moshe when he was up getting the Torah the first time around? Did Hashem say, this is game plan. We're going to have this. We're going to make this home. Blah, blah, blah. Moshe comes down. Oops, golden calf is going on. So he, like, we spend time clearing up golden calf. And then once they're forgiven, he goes back. He finally tells the people something that he already knew about that Hashem had told him before the golden calf. Got it? No. Yes. Did they get the golden? Get, is the, is the, and I'm going to do this quickly. Is the Mishkan strictly a response to the golden calf? Or was it always given as a commandment to Moshe, but the actualization of it was only after the golden calf? And the big difference that we're going to have to discuss is what kind of people are eligible to build a home for God? Because if it's, if it's, a ho- if it's only a response to golden calf, well, then if I never mess up, then I have no need to build a home for God. And on the other hand, if it's, something that Moshe had before and has been a holdout to, through, through the Golden Calf episode, then there's a place that even as the Jewish people are sinning with the worst sin that they're ever going to do, they still have this commandment. It's also, there's a, I'm going to add one more twist to the thing. At what point did the people know about it? Did the people know about it before? So then they go into this massive sin knowing that they have, you know, so that that sort of colors how their, what their sin looks like. Or is it something that Moshe knew about but the people didn't know about? So then, do, you know, what kind of people are eligible? I mean, at the end of the day, I think, and we talk about this a lot, and I know I repeat myself a lot, and I quote Robbie Friedman all the time with this, we are all of those people. We are the, we are the tzaddik, and we are the Russia, and we are the Bainini. We are all of those people at the same time because there's different aspects of our lives where, they're, where, they, you know, where, where those titles could apply. You know, in the, in the, in, maybe not in Tanya titles, but in like the more loose uh, version of, you know, how good are we doing? You know, the tzaddik is like where God's going to win. And the Russians, we're like, uh, we're going to pick up that fight later. 
you know? And the Bainani things are the places where we're, we're struggling, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work. So that's why it's not a Tanya, it's not a Tanya Bainani. It's just like, you know, plain Jane time, plain Jane, you know, Bainani kind of situation. Like, I think it's so real for our lives to understand that in all of those spaces and all of those times, we need to have a relationship with Hashem. And especially today, when we don't actually have, you know, we don't have an experiential base on Mikdash up then we have to figure out how do we recreate it for ourselves and how do we you know, bring that connection alive when you don't just get to go to the temple and be inspired by the awe of Hashem. Like then how do you do it? And, then, and that's really the, the place of the harder work for us. It's much harder to have to inspire yourself and create a connection it's, you know, rather than go and it's like the, the pomp and ceremony of the Beis HaMikdash will like inspire you. It's like, so, so right now we're in the harder place. It's like having to actually create that relationship and say, wait a second, how does this relate to my life? How do these vessels, and we're talking about the clothing, how does this relate to us today? All of that is going to be, it's harder, but, but clearly doable. Because look at us, we're all sitting around here trying to figure out how to, how to do it. So clearly that's, uh, you know, yay, points for us. We're trying, we're trying. I don't know if we got there, but we're trying. And I think, I think and I want to make like the biggest shout out and bracha for all of us, that we keep trying. It's so easy to say it didn't work, it didn't work. But the fact that we each keep waking up every single morning and we try again today to do the best that we possibly could based on the knowledge that we have and based on our personality and based on all those kind of things, yeah, but, you know, when we say Maida'ani, we say, okay, God, we're starting another day and we're going to give it our best shot. I mean, that's got to be, like, the biggest nachas for Hashem. So a bracha to being able to, to wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to try again today because, because, because that's what it's all about. Okay. Okay, so we mentioned that Moshe is not in this parsha. We mentioned that um, we mentioned the making of the oil for the menorah. Okay, it's an interesting thing that who actually is going to use the oil? Aaron. But who's going to get the command? Who's be who's responsible for doing it? Moshe. Okay, you already learned the mind for like five weeks. We're not going back there. Okay, <laughs> right? So we're not going back there. Okay. The next thing that we're going to have here from chapter twenty-eight. Um, the, the next, the rest of this aliyah and the second aliyah and the third aliyah are pretty much going to talk about the clothing for the Kohanim and for the Kohen Gadol, okay? So we're going to look at that for a second. I think at this point we have Aaron and four sons who we have to have these, these, uh, who we're going to make these clothes, clothing for. If you look in chapter 28, verse 2, Vasisa big de kodesh la'aren achicha lechavod ulutiferet. You should make clothing, holy clothing for Aaron, your brother, lichavod ulutiferet. What? Big day means clothes. Okay. okay. We're going to talk about that in a second. Lichavod. Anybody? Honor. For honor. And tiferet? And harmony. Harmony or beauty. Or beauty. Harmony or beauty. Okay. Um, so there's more than one Kohen Gadol? So there is one Kohen Gadol at any time in history. And there is always an understudy Kohen Gadol. Just like, because if anything happens to the Kohen Gadol, whether he becomes impure or, God forbid, he passes away, the show must go on. So there's always an understudy to the Kohen Gadol. What? Was the first word? What? Sorry, what was the first word before 
כבוד. לכבוד ולתפארת. For honor, honor, honor and beauty. Okay, because there we we're going to talk about now two different categories of clothing, but I want to pause for a second. We're going to have the clothing for the kohen, what's called the kohen hedyot, hedyot, the regular kohen, and you have the kohen gadol. So there's two categories of kohanim, lots of kohen, regular kohanim, one kohen gadol. Okay, um, but I want to stop for a second because Elishavi asked a good question about what does big day mean and beged, beg. Okay. Beged means clothing, yeah. but it also shares a root with. What's that word? Boged. Boged. Anybody know what a boged is? Boged is a traitor. A boged. It's a bed. A boged is a traitor. And the question of what are what do our clothes do is something that an interesting question that we should. Ask ourselves. We talk about clothing a lot in Hasidus, the garments of the soul, right? And one of the things that we talk about that you could wear a garment that isn't really who you are. And sometimes that place of boget, of it being traitorous, it works kind of in both directions. Like in English, it doesn't really work in both directions. But in, but in, the, in the headspace of it, sometimes we wear clothing and it's not who we are. You could easily put on your friend's clothing. You could put on something that represents, you know, that looks. And Sigurdsson, didn't you say, don't judge me by, Sigurdsson, don't judge me, don't judge me by my clothing. It's not who I am. In which case we are choosing, love you. In which case we are choosing clothes deliberately that either more or less represent who we are, right? You could say the clothing is, uh, you know, it will maybe represent us in a way that we feel positively or negatively doesn't represent who we are, and in which case it's being a little bit traitorous. But on the other hand, and Hasidus talks about this a lot, that by putting on, you know, and they talk about, you know, put on a smile if you're not happy and it's going to make you happy. Mm-hmm. Putting on clothing or putting on an attitude that we aren't quite feeling right now, and I'm going to say in a positive will help us get into that space, okay? We also have clothing that's appropriate for different things. It's, it's appropriate to go to sleep in your pajamas. It's not appropriate to come to a wedding in your pajamas. Yes, you're more comfortable in your, clo- in your pajamas, but you still don't come to a wedding like that, right? Um, we could say, for example, I have to go, I'm, I'm going to a wedding. I'm not 100% in the mood of going to the wedding, but I will put on my party clothes. I'll put on my shoes. I'll do my makeup. I'll do my hair. And it will help me get into the mood of where I know that I want to be. And I think that the same is true both, A, practically with clothing, but I want to talk more about attitude of how we represent ourselves and how we choose what what spiritual garments we choose to put on at any given moment because I know we like to think it just happened, I, it was out of my control and I am here to say that a lot of what we'd like to blame on circumstance is actually in our control. If we're going to be happy, if we're going to be satisfied with what we have, if we're going to be um, friendly, yes, I didn't have my coffee yet, but, but still, but still, you could pull it together if you really wanted to. And I'm going to make, a, you know, I'm going to make a, um, not a plea, that's too big a word. But maybe, a ch- no, I'm going to make a challenge. I'm going to challenge you. What? Suggestion is a good one. You know, 
I like to blame everything on the Americans. <laughs> this isn't who I am. I'm just being my true self. Yeah, well, sometimes your true self should be put into a closet and you should put on a fake self that has a smile and that's friendly and that's nice. Because I, I get that you don't really feel it, but the world doesn't really care. And sometimes, I'm not saying we have to be inauthentic. I'm not saying that. But I think sometimes it's okay to not let my whole self hang out and to put on clothes that are slightly traitorous. I'm not in such a good mood. I'm not feeling so friendly. I'm not feeling so welcoming. But that's what I know that I want to do. So I will create that space within me so that I could project what I, I know I want to do. You know, the place of your mind ruling your heart. We are not heart-led people. We need to have heart, but we should not be heart-led. We need to be, we need to choose where we're going and how we're moving. End of my rant. I, 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 I'm not looking to offend anybody, but I just feel like it's too often it's an excuse that we just pull out of our closet and say, but I have anger issues. Deal with it. Deal with it. We don't care. Like, pull it together and say it's not who I truly am. I'm not reacting to my truest sense. But if your truest sense isn't a positive, nice person, be a little bit of a traitor. Pretend to be a nice person. Okay. Now, we're going to start talking about the clothes because the clothes were gorgeous. Okay? I want to oh, say one more thing about le cavoto le tifert for, for beauty and honor. I want to make a plug for Jewish women to look honorable and beautiful. Okay? The clothes that the Kohen Gadol and the Kohanim were supposed to wear, the, the headline for it is le cavoto le tifert. And I want to make a plug for ourselves to look in our closets and say, do my clothes honor me? Are they beautiful? Or am I just wearing these because I... I don't want to knock the 30 shekel store because we get very nice stuff sometimes in the 30 shekel store. But sometimes we're looking at, we're wearing clothes that somebody else, that somebody else, we, that we wouldn't in other circles. Like, I'm not saying, I'm, I'm a big fan of the 30 shekel store. Don't knock it. But, I, but, not, everything, but not everything in it is le cavoto le tiferet for us. And I think that that's something that we have to say. How am I walking around? Am I represent? I'm a Jewish woman. Am I walking around the Kavod Tiferet? And, and that's, that's what I want to say about that. Okay, let's talk about the clothing. First, we're going to talk about the clothes of the Kohen Gadol. Okay, so we have eight garments. It's going to be listed in verses... There's no eraser here. There's an eraser here. Okay, what are the clothing of the Kohen Gadol? Anybody? It starts in verse four. A breastplate. A breastplate. Okay, the Choshen. The breastplate, yes. An effort. Okay. Okay. An a foot. We're gonna get to it in a second. Yeah. A robe. A robe. A hat. Nope. Oh, no. Tunic. Tunic. A turban. Turban. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Sash. Sash. Did we get eight? No. One, two, three, four, five, six. We're missing one, two, three, four, five, six. We're missing two. Keep going. Mm-hmm. So not clothing. A box like this. That's that's the clothes. That's, that's the, the robe. That's it. That's the, the robe and the tunic. The hat, a headpiece we have. A belt. No, we have the sash. The sash is the belt. Uh, keep going. Yeah, I don't keep... mean the, like, the tunic, but, or the turban, but I also mean like, the headplate on the turban. Oh, 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 the seats. It's called the seats. The seats. The seats, which is like a diadem, which I didn't actually ever see in writing any place except in Harry Potter. But the seats, we're missing one. Oh, pants. Hello, pants. Pants, 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 pants. Uh, I thought you didn't have pants. He did have pants. What? Okay. 
No. A tunic is long. Okay. Um, one, two, three, four. The all Kohanim had a tunic, a turban, a sash, and pants. Okay. Isn't a dress a tunic? No, it's a know. long shirt. I thought there was a thing where basically it was something about like the steps of the mezbah are like. It's like a ramp instead of correct, and it says they do not to not to show their nakedness. Yeah, right. But they didn't; they weren't actually naked. But basically, they had pants, which are like pantaloons, came to their knee from their waist to their knee. They had a they had a tunic. All the Kohanim had a tunic, which was long, like it came like mid calf. Okay, those were both made of white linen. They had a turban, which is sixteen amas long. Remember, we talked about how big an amma is. Okay, and it has to be wound. Um, the Kohei and the Kohen Gadol have the turban, the hat, wound differently. Okay, and then they had a set. What? But the Sikhs. There's different. If you look in the pic, the, if you look at the Chabash and they have pictures, the turbans are different. The Kohen, the Kohen, the regular Kohanim, they so, sort of look conish, which they must be prettier than they look in the Chabashim because they don't look very pretty in the Chabashim. Um, and the Kohen Gadol, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. There's a discussion. Was it kind of roundish, like um, picture, like not a baker's hat, but maybe something like that, or was it some other kind of weave, more turbanish with space in the middle? Kind of you ever see the women walking around in the shuk like with a turban all around there? Okay, that's still a lot of material. I want to just say. Okay, now all of that stuff was white. Was that all had that all the Kohanim had? All the Kohanim had these things that are checked. Now the sash. This is really cool. The sash was made of, if you, anybody take a look, what's it made out of? All the threads. Remember all those threads we had last week? Yeah. Shea, Shargamon, Tcheles, the purple and the thing oh. and the... I'm losing all my colors. Yeah. Right? Purple. Turquoise, purple, linen, aquamarine, scar. Yeah, all those colors. And basically, the way they made the threads, if anybody here is a spinner, every single, every single thread was made of six threads woven together with gold. So that the, let's say the trelet, or that bluish, was six strands of blue with one of gold. And then that was woven together with all of them. So the sash, for everybody who thinks black is the nicest color in the world, it was no place on the Kohen or on the Kohen Gado. Okay, the sash was multi-multicolored, gold, purple, um, the white linen, all those things. And, and the sash, has anybody ever seen um, a man wearing a gartel? Yes. Yeah. Okay, so you see, like, a, it goes like this. Mm-hmm. Okay, that is about between six and eight feet long. A gartel that a man wears on regular Shabbos, mm-hmm. right? The sash of the Kohen wore was 32 amas long. Jeez. I mean, it's twice as long as the turbans, but it's also very, very, very long. And the way that they, when they used to get dressed in the morning... They couldn't put it on themselves. Could you imagine wrapping 32 amas of material around you? It basically went from their heart, like their whole stomach was covered. It was very tight. And they used to, they used to be, have two kohanim who would dress the third. Okay? And so one person would stand and the other person would, the other two people would basically it's pass. Heavy. It's, it's very heavy. Possible. You know, I, I think that um, in our American values... Comfort reigns over all, and I have to say that I'm totally buying into that. But there, but there are certain times where the occasion does not call for me to, to me to be, does not call for me to be my most comfortable. It calls for me to be my most dignified, and they are wearing beautiful, beautiful clothing. So 
the just random in interesting information. If a Kohen came late in the morning and there weren't enough people to, that's a punishment for him, one Kohen would hold the end of the sash and he would have to roll himself into it. <laughs> uh, that's, oh my God. I'd end up super dizzy after that. Okay? So that's what everybody has. So just imagine, I just want to say three things. First of all, these are all the clothing that they wore. They had a pants, the tunic, the sash, and the hat. Okay? So uh, in the winter in Jerusalem, I'm sure it's cold. In the base on Mikdash, they actually had rooms where the Kohanim could go to warm themselves up. Um, and in the summer, it's probably very nice because it's linen clothing and the tunic is made of like a basket weave kind of pattern. Very, very pretty. Okay. And so the robe was linen. Yeah, the, the whites are all linen. And there's a whole conversation in the base of English, which we're not going to get into because then we're for sure not going to finish our parsha about where people store their clothing and blah, blah, blah. Okay? Now, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, had four other articles of clothing. Okay? He had, first of all, we're not going to go in order of how it's listed in the Chumash. I just want to do it in a way that is easy for us to picture. The first thing he had was a tzitz. It was a piece of gold on his forehead. And it was attached with tchelet, uh, like those blue strings. There's a difference, obviously, in Jewish. It was, a, it was like on his forehead. And then they had strings that attached it. So, of course, Maimonides and Rashi have different opinions about how it was tied. Rashi says there were three strings, and it went over the top of his head, like over his hat. There's a difference of opinion. But bottom line, on his forehead, it said, Kodesh Hashem, mm -hmm. holy to God. And it didn't say Hashem. It said God's, God's full name. And the Kohen Gadol was never allowed to lift his hands higher than that seat. So that means, we talked about this last week, that the menorah had to have steps because the menorah was tall. And he couldn't pick up his hand like this. He had to keep his hand straight out. One second. So that's, so that's the seat. So that's one thing that he has additional. Amber, question. Which name of God did he have on it? I think it was a 42-letter name of Hashem. But I'm not... There's a 42-letter name of Hashem. Yeah, but I don't. But I wouldn't swear to it. And then, of course, in good tradition, was it on one line? Was it on two lines? Whatever. It's a conversation. Okay. So that's the easy, the easy thing. The next thing he has, I'm gonna. Okay, he has. All of these are actually fascinating that I want to talk about. Okay, so he has the robe. It's a meil. It's basically almost. It's a sleeveless kind of another layer. It's trelet. It's made out of that sky blue color. And on the bottom of the on the bottom of the meal are pomegranates and bells. Okay? Now, right? Have we learned about this? Okay, good. Huh? Okay. Okay. So so I want to say two things about it. Rashi and Nachmanides disagree, right? Besides that, okay, I'm not gonna get into the apples of the pomegranate. Yes, that is a question, but besides that, there's a conversation. Of were the pom Rashi says it was pomegranates, pomegranates and bells interspersed, and Nachmanides says why would you have empty pomegranates? There's going to be the bells are going to be inside them, and that's going to be the whole thing. I'm so glad that you learned the sicha, so you don't have to get into that conversation. But for the purpose of anybody who did not learn the sicha, I want to just mention for one second, for one second, that the Kohen Gadol represents all of the Jewish people, including those of us who are hanging by the thread at the bottom, saying, "Help me, help me, help me." Okay, so that's the people who are making lots of noise in our Avodah Hashem. Oh. And so those people also get represented by the, by the Kohen Gadol. Okay, so that's the robe. It's, it's, um, it's trelet, it's, so it's like that sky blue color 
with the pomegranates and the bells, and it has a woven hem around the top so that it can't be, uh, so it doesn't rip. I don't know like how that would work practically, meaning it wasn't a sewed hem, it was somehow woven into the material that it was like a reinforced neck. I don't sew so well, so I use duct tape, so, <laughs> so I don't know. Okay, now, that's, so that's the robe. On top of the robe was, huh? No, no, it wasn't sewn, it had to be woven. It had to be like woven, woven reinforced. And if you don't have like a, some kind of fancy sewing machine, I don't know how to do it, but whatever. Okay, then they have the aphode. Then they have the aphode, okay? Rashi says a very interesting thing when he talks about the aphode. He says, Rashi says about the aphode in Pasuk Vav, um, oh, that's not Rashi. Where's Rashi? Rashi's everywhere. Uh, okay. Okay. say there. So, uh, Rashi says... It's like an apron. Of the right. So, Rashi says... He says... He uses an interesting expression here, and I can't find it in the Rashi. I should use, I should use a chumash that I actually mark up instead of trying to find these things. Rashi says, as Elisheva said... He describes it as like a noble woman's riding costume that's basically from here, from your waist, it's long and down. It wraps from the back and then it has straps that come to the shoulder and it ties in the front. It's a pinafore. But it's not. It's just the back. It's not a full pinafore. It doesn't have a front. and It, it doesn't have a front. It has a back that comes, let's say, to here. Imagine a piece of material that wraps till here to like sort of the front of you. And then it has ties here and it has two straps that go to your shoulder. Rashi uses a very, very interesting expression. If anybody wants to find it, they'll tell me exactly where it is. When he describes what an aphode looks like, he says, Libi Omer Li. My heart tells me that it is like this situation. Okay? And it is like this noble woman riding, riding outfit. And the Rebbe asks the question like, how do you just say Libi Omerli? Like, I think. What does it mean, I think? Right? So Rebbe says that the Baal Shem Tov taught that everything that we see in here is a lesson in our Avedis Hashem. And they, he tells a backstory that Rashi was contemplating the story of what, is, what do these clothing look like. And he remembered that either the day before or whenever before, he saw a noble woman riding on her horse. And he was wondering, why did Hashem make me see a noble woman riding on her horse? Libi Oimer, my heart tells me I saw that so I should know what the aphod looks like. Mm-hmm. Okay? Now, I heard something, and it was, I had such an interesting, whatever. I was listening to a talk, and he quotes one of the Bali Musr, and, the, and he was saying that, um, again, Libi Oimer seems, I don't want to say it sounds arrogant, because that's like a very harsh word, but it seems like, how do you say Libby Eimer? So he was saying in the shir, he's like, do you ever see an old married couple and one starts saying something and the other one finishes a sentence? That's Libby Eimer. And he says that, that uh, uh, Rabbi, Hendl, Rabbi Hendler, whose father-in-law was Ramesha Feinstein, he was, he was giving a hesped, he was giving a eulogy for his father-in-law, and he said that there are different people and have different relationships to Tyra. You have people who are engaged to Tyra, so, like, they know Tyra, you know, not as well as they will, but then you have people who, like, don't even have any relationship with Tyra, but then you have people who are married to Tyra, and they are so connected to Tyra, and they are so, they know it so well, they love it so much, 
that Libi Omer Li makes sense to, in that context, that somebody is so connected to Torah. It's not that they read one article on Wikipedia. It's not like they saw a thing on YouTube. They actually are so engaged with Torah on such a deep level that they are able to say, I think I know what the answer is. Based on my relationship with Torah, I think I know what the answer is. This morning I was having a conversation and my husband and I were talking and he's, I said something and he said, like he finished it, I'm like, that's Levy Unmerly. That's exactly the point. You married long enough. You know what the person's going to say about a topic. Um, um, but I want to say, I want to, and I, I know we'll give a bracha at the end, but I want to give a bracha now. I think that's what we're doing here in my note. I think that what we're doing here is learning Libi Aymerli. We're coming to a relationship with a Torah that is not casual, that is deep and real. I don't know that any of us are going to leave after this time and say, I got it all. Because if you said you got it all, then we definitely did not do the job well. But I feel, <laughs> I'm sorry. But I feel starting that understanding that that's the place that I want to move into. I want to have a relationship with Torah that is that I could guess where this would be going. And I think that's really what we're doing and all the hard work that everybody's doing and giving in their time and their effort and their brain cells and everything and time and more time and more time and breaking your teeth with practicing whatever language it is that you're learning and you're working on, you're going towards Libi Aymerli. So I want to give you a bracha, whether we get to the ultimate, we're married to Torah or we're just like a really great engaged couple and we're so cute. All of those are good answers, and, and we should take steps in that direction. So that's my bracha. That's that's me. Me. That's what Libby Omer means my heart tells me. How do you spell that My heart tells me. Okay? Okay, the next thing, now, we have the choshen, which is the breastplate, and that is going to complete the aphod. So I said the aphod has a wraparound, and it has straps on top. Then we have, I'm going to use a chumash for a second, okay? The chayshin was actually a material that folded over, okay? It was big. And it had on it 12 stones. And on each stone it said, it had the name of one of the tribes. It also had on the first stone, it said Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov. And on the bottom it said Shiftei Ka, okay? The tribes of God. What? What's what? Okay, so we, it was four rows, three across, okay, of precious stones. Now, this is very big bling, I want to just say, okay? The Kohen Gadol, it's big. You have to be able to write Reuven on the stone, okay? And basically, what, the reason I said it's folded over was because in this space of the Chayshin, they used to put what's called the Urim V'tumim, which is the, the name of Hashem, and the... There's a whole conversation in different Mepharshim, what was the Ur Matumim? The easiest, the, the most simple explanation for it is that it was almost like a, a piece of parchment that Hashem's name on it that acted as a battery pack for the Choshen. And one of the things that the Choshen did was when the Kohen, oh, before, I'm going to get, no, let me. One of the things the Choshen did when it had the Ur Matumim was that it, the letters on the Choshen could light up. If there was a question of national importance, the king would go to the Kohen Gadol, they would ask a question of Hashem, and letters on the Choshen would light up. Anybody good at anagrams? Because that's how you would get the letters, but you wouldn't necessarily get the answer exactly like that, which is why, if anybody remembers our story of Chana, when she was, when she was davening in Shiloh, remember? Remember the story? And Eli says to her, 
What does he say to her? You're drunk. You're drunk. You're drunk. Go home. And what does she say? I'm not drunk. I am. I'm doubting. I'm doubting. But if you look at the words, he says to her, Shikaira, you're drunk. And she says, no. Isha Kishera Anaychi. He says, Shikaira. And she says, you read the letters wrong. I'm kosher. I'm davening my heart out. So the chayshen, the, when the Urim was in the chayshen, the letters would light up. Do we go to war? Do we whatever? And Urim um, is the, okay, so uh, the easiest, way, one way that they describe it in the Mavarshim is that it's like a piece of parchment with Hashem's name. You slip it in, it works. Now the Urim is not one of the eight clothes of the Kayin Gadol. So that means that Kayin Gadol is allowed to do the service if he does not have the Urim Batumim. In the second temple period, they did not have the Urim Batumim. Okay? So, but, he, but it's not considered part of the eight, so he was able to do the service. Before you hold the question, write it down so you don't forget it. Okay? Now, the, the Chayshen was connected with gold chains to the top of the aphoid and to the side of the aphoid. So there were gold chains on the side that connected to the aphoid. And he had to wear it tight. The, the Choshen was not allowed to move. So he has his 32-armor long sash. He has his, his, he has his um, coat, his, his me'il on. He has his foot and his Choshen, and it does, it's not allowed to move. It has to stay over his heart. It's tight, and it's, and it's, it's beautiful. On his shoulders, the Kohen Gadol has two onyx stones, and on each stone, it had six tribes. Six in birth order, six and six on his. So he basically carried the names of the tribes in two different versions. Every tribe individually on both shoulders. He had six and six. He either had six and six on two onyx stones, or he had on each stone um, one tribe was listed. Okay, which which really is sort of also highlighting the place of the Jewish people have many different relationships with Hashem. We have each of us as a tribe as we are like that. And we, but there's also how we are as part of the bigger cholesterol, and that's where it shows up as a six. And both of those relationships are important and valid, and both of them have to, A, we have to understand them and step into that space, but also the Kohen Gadol has to carry both of those relationships that we have with Hashem and with the rest of the people when he goes around. Amber, question. Yeah, you said like, in the Hashem, there's a name of Hashem, and like, it the letters. Like, so it's interesting. Different the the there's different mafarshim about what the Urim Vatomim was. So some some mafarshim talk about it being a place of the Kohen Gadol having to a meditation that he was he was able to channel. It's clearly not. You know you can't buy this in the dollar store, and it's clearly bigger than you know whatever. Um, I would think that everything that's going on in the Beis HaMikdash is going to have so many layers, and of course Kabbalah is going to be part of it. Is it does it take Kabbalah to answer the question, should the country, should the, should the, is the, could the king, you know, have a war? I don't know if that's a Kabbalah question, or it's a, whatever it is, in whatever, in whatever column that would come down, but it's definitely, everything that was going on in the Beis HaMikdash was like, it's so interesting, I was thinking about this. Today, we're like so skeptical because <laughs> like, we're like, where, where's the trick? Like, how did it happen? Where are the strings? Where's the, you know, we're not impressed easily. And I, 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 I'm giving us all a bracha that when the Beis HaMikdash is back and we get to see all this stuff that we could 
we could suspend our our disbelief and our you know sarc not our sarcasm what's cynicism like we could just suspend it and be actually be able to be open to seeing you know the miracles that Hashem is going to give us I mean it's probably true all the time when we walk around we could see miracles or we could see you know coincidence or whatever but I feel like it's we're so used to effects and things and 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 for us to go back to a place of purity and being able to like say you know this is God this is not just like amazing amazing effects you know Steven Spielberg is like going to be put to shame no it's going to be we're going to be able to really be in that space of of being open to to what Hashem's giving us so it's God yes how heavy would this question everything was heavy it was heavy the amount meaning every one thing is not so heavy the pants aren't so heavy the tunic isn't so heavy the sash is going to end up being heavy the choshen is going to be heavy like everything added on I don't know what the weight is I'm sure if we if we Google, you know, someplace, there's probably what it all weighed. Probably. probably, but I'm saying, but just imagine, like, 12 big jewels yeah. are going to be heavy. Another two big jewels on, like, it's all going to be heavy. And, and back to the Kavodo Tiferet, he's not, he's, he's walking, holding God and holding the Jewish people, representing the Jewish people to God and God to the Jewish people. And so even if it's going to be heavy, he's going to hopefully wear it lightly. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It could be heavy, and I think it's true for us as well. When we talk about how we go around in the streets, there are sometimes we walk around and we are in a place that is not super comfortable, but if we understand who we are and what we are, then we wear ourselves and whatever it is that we're wearing a little bit lighter because this is who we are. This is how we're doing, the, this is how we're doing it. Okay? Um... Okay, we have the things. Okay, what else? Here's a hat, here's a thing. Okay, now once you get to the fourth, did we get all the things? Yeah, we got all the garments. We did, oh, the pants. The pants, yeah, we did the pants right away. This we did first. The, so everybody has this, including the coin gadol. And the coin has these in addition. Uh, sits, sits, like sits, sits. No, no, no. Sits. sits. The tits, oh, okay. the tits on his forehead. I'm sorry, I can't. That's okay. Um, 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 okay. Now the next part of the Chomish, the, the next part of the Parsha, the fourth and the fifth and the sixth Aliyah, is going to talk about. It's going to talk about the induction of the Kohanim into the service of Hashem. Okay. They have to be, it's interesting that we have this much attention because it only ever happened once in history. Now, when Hashem is saying Aaron and his children are going to be the Kohanim, um, parenthetically, the Medrash tells us that Moshe was supposed to be the Kohen. Originally, Moshe was supposed to be the Kohen. And when he argued with God at the burning bush, God's like, okay, I'll give it to Aaron. <laughs> so, so here is, this is sort of, uh, um, he has to now take, so what Moshe is going to do is he's going to, He's going to have to bring them into the service of Hashem. He's going to dress them. He's going to put all the clothing on them, tie da 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 da, da. He's going to take Shemina Mishcha, which is anointing oil, and he's going to put it on, um, on their forehead. And then it's, it talks about over here, they have sacrifices that they have to bring and different... When we talk about challahs in the base of Mikdash, there were no actual... There was no chametz that was brought. There was different kinds of matzah, thicker... In oil, da, 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 thicker, thinner, all this kind of stuff that was going on. They have to bring all kinds of carbonize. 
and um, and Moshe was doing all the all the all the service of of inducting them. One of the things that's interesting, um, uh, he they had to also they had to take oil. Sorry, no, they had to take blood from the, one of the animals. I'm just trying to see where it is. Um, they had to put some blood on the Cohen's earlobe and on their thumb and on their toe, which is kind of weird. Seems a bit like a random. So it seems a little bit random. So in Chassidus, it talks about the idea that um, one of the things that we're reminding them, because you're taking blood from a sacrifice and you're putting it on their ear and on their finger and on their toe, to remind them that power is a very, very you got to be very careful with power, and that even everybody, even people get into positions of power and they start off in a good space, but what do we do with it? What do we do? Do we remain a listening ear? Do we remain a giving hand? Are we always there to help other people and to step into that space to help them? That's, that's <laughs> sort of what we're reminding the Kohanim of what, the, what they have to do. In the line of weird things that they have to do, that Moshe has to be sides of, because that is kind of weird, but Moshe has to, he's, off, he's bringing them as a sacrifice to Hashem, and he, sacrifices have to be waived. Now, so Moshe had to, what does that mean? He had to take Aaron, he had to lift Aaron, and he had to wave him like a sacrifice in six directions. Okay? It must be heavy. So it's going it, to, it, it now is one thing. Now it's Aaron and four children. They're going to do this to the Levites later on, and there are going to be 5,000 Levites, and they're going to have to take care of all of them. So, pick them up. One at a time. Not a, no, one at a time. One at a time. But still, that's very hard. So he's going to wave them. He's going to bring them into the, sac- into, the, into the service, and they have all the sacrifices that are going on. Okay. Now, um, and this is going to go on almost till the last aliyah. In the last aliyah, we're going to have the final article of the Mishkan that was not talked about till now, which is the golden altar that we bring the Ketoris on. So that's, um, that is, um, that's at the end. The seventh aliyah talks about making the Mizbeach to bring the, to bring the incense on. It's going to be smaller and it's going to, um, it's going to be wood covered with gold. Um, and then we're going to, and they have the corners, blah, 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 blah. And that's, um, yeah. Okay. So, so that's, okay. Now the last thing that we talk about here is bringing the carbon tumid, the bring, bring the daily sacrifice. There was a carbon tumid. There was a day, a sacrifice that was brought twice daily, once in the morning as daybreak started and once towards the evening as the day was ending. Um, and so we have the end, in the end, end, end of the parsha. we talk about the carbon tamid. Um, so I want to say two things. I want to say two things. First of all, um, the, the Gemara tells us that after every, every like major holiday, when the Jews would come to the Beis HaMikdash, um, most, because they weren't sure that everybody who was coming to the Beis HaMikdash was uh, very... Uh, well versed in the laws of purity, tum and tahara, of you could say purity and impurity, accessible to holiness or inaccessible to holiness. I don't know there's all kinds of tum and tahara, like the easiest because it doesn't mean anything, like not that it doesn't mean anything, but like accessible and inaccessible to holiness. So because they weren't sure that everybody knew all the laws properly, so after the yuntif was over, after the chag was over, they would take all the vessels and they would put them in the mikvah. They would title all the, 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 the vessels just in case. They, I just want 
after each holiday, not on a regular Shabbos, but three times a year, the Jews came to the to the Beis Now you weren't going to the the Jews couldn't get to the Menorah, but that was sort of the procedure that once most of these the vessels were places that the Jews could get to. But after the after the after after the holiday, they would they would table all the vessels. That still happened in the Beit Hamikdash. When in the Beit Hamikdash they did this, not in the, oh, not in the Mishkan, Mishkan, not in the Mishkan. In the Beit Hamikdash they would do this. The only two vessels that they did not have to that they did not have to table was the golden altar and the copper altar. Okay, both of those were connected to the ground, and the Torah tells us that wooden objects that are connected to, to the ground can never become impure. Great. What does that mean for us? So one, one, one altar is covered in copper and one altar is covered in gold, but inside their, ba- their base is wood. And so Chassidus explains that every single vessel, we spoke about it briefly yet, um, last week, every single vessel relates to another part of our, of our body. And every single part of us could somehow get corrupted. Our eyes, our brains, for sure our stomach. But, you know... But the one thing that can never, ever, ever get corrupted because it's always connected is our desire, is our, our, is our, is our innate connection to Hashem. And that's what the Mizbeach um, symbolizes, our innate connection to Hashem and our, and our desire to be connected at all costs. And that is something that no matter what happens, it doesn't matter if it's gold on the outside, if it's copper on the outside, like how much we perfected that, but it, at, the, about at its base and at its core... It's pure and it's a, it's a total connection to Hashem, and that never needs to go, never needs to get to the, never get, needs to, it will never become impure because it's connected, so intrinsically connected to the house of Hashem because it's not, that's the one thing in us that's never going away. We might say the things we learn, the things we see, the things we say, maybe we, uh, whatever. But our, our desire to be connected, that's always, that's always there and it's always pure and it's always untainted no matter what it looks like on the outside, but the inside is always untainted. So that was one thing that I wanted to share. The other thing that I wanted to share was, I'm actually not going to share that now. I'm going to share one more thing. No, I will share this. The last thing we talk about in this parsha is the carbon atamid, the sacrifice that was brought every, twice daily. And the Gemara tells us about three, three Tanaim who were sitting around and they wanted to know what was the most important verse in the Torah. And one said, Shema Yisrael, obviously, that's the most important verse. And the other one said, love your neighbor as yourself. And the third one said, Tamid, uh, let me just quote the, pro- the he said, um, no, I, missed, I lost the Pasuk. Hmm. I don't have a pasuk here. He says that shel shachas and shel ben arbaim. That the most important it's in here someplace. Um, that the most important verse is that you brought. You found it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, chapter sorry twenty nine verse thirty nine. Twenty nine thirty nine. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Kevis asheni tasa ben arbaim. That the one lamb you'll do in the morning, and the second you'll do in the evening, and the third Tana said that the most important thing that the most, like let's say our bumper sticker for Judaism is consistency. Is consistency. 
showing up all the time when we're needed for what we're needed. And that is actually the most important thing. Shema Yisrael is very important and V'yahaf L'Rach Kamalcha is very important. But can we do this when we're not inspired? Can we do this when it's hard for us? Can we do this when we're tired and we're, like I say, pre-coffee and all these kind of things? That is the most important thing. So I want to give us a bracha that we are able to show up all the time, consistently, to be there, to be our best, the best version of ourselves, no matter what else is going on, because that is the most important thing. If you want to know if something's real, can I do it even when the conditions are not optimal? I'm finishing with one thought, and really I'm finishing. This week is the second of the fourth Parshas that you, we talked about. Talked about it with my husband, so I'm not going to repeat it. This week we read Parsha Zachar. We read in the Torah the section of when Amalek attacked the Jewish people and a command not to forget what Amalek did to us. Okay, when we say it's a Parsha, it's not a whole Parsha. It's maybe five or six verses. We're going to take out a second Torah scroll. Um, we're going to take out a second Torah scroll. It's going to be read as the Maftir. So you're going to pick up the first Torah we're going to take out. We're going to read Parsha Tetzave. They'll read seven Aliyahs. They'll pick up the Torah. And then they will take out, then they will take the second Torah. They take both of them out at the same time. They'll take the second Torah. They will open it up to Parsha's, I think it's Kisisa. And, um, and, they, and they will, but I could be wrong, and they read the part of when Amalek attacked, attacked the Jewish people. And they're going to pick up the Torah again. It is actually a biblical commandment to hear Parsha Zachar, okay? So for all of us, myself included, who do not go to Shul on a regular basis, um, this is an opportune time for you to go and hear the... It, it's an interesting thing about memory and the things that we remind ourselves not to forget because I feel like there are certain things we would have forgotten long, a long time ago if we didn't have to remember to forget not to forget them. Do you know what I mean? And I think like that place, and Hasidus talks a lot about a mullik and that attitude of just like, chill, just be relaxed. It doesn't matter. Asher kar it means it literally means that he met you on the way, but it, Hasidus explains it to cool us off, that we shouldn't be excited, we shouldn't be passionate about our Judaism, we shouldn't be crazy on God. And, and, and so we go once a year to Shul, and we make sure that we hear that that is not the attitude. The attitude is that we should be hyper on God. We should be crazy. We should be... We should, we should remember the people who try to just say, eh, just relax, it's going to be fine. You don't have to you keep your Shabbos, but why do you have to be so excited about it? That's definitely how Hasidus looks at it. Um, so that's going to be this week, Parsha Zachar. And uh, so I'm making a plug that we should go to Shul. If you do not hear it on Shabbos, most Shuls will read it on Purim as well. But it is, in fact, there's uh, a biblical injunction to hear it. That was one thing. The last thing I want to say, and I want to give us a bracha, that we're going into the week of Purim. Isn't this? Like, ah! <laughs> right? It's like, no, it's not here yet. I still have to make meatballs. Um, <laughs> it's almost here. It's almost here. Um, so I want to give us a bracha that one of the, the things I feel like that we so relate to Purim is that it just looked so normal. It just looked... Like, we didn't see how this was going to end well, but we also, Hashem, there wasn't like this thunder, lightning, splitting seas. It was a very, very, very regular, normal story. And sometimes we look around, maybe we don't all, but I definitely look around and I'm like, how is this, how does this story end well? Like, I'm trying to figure out, how does this whole situation end on a positive note? And we have Purim to tell us, there is always layers and layers and layers to the story. Hashem is always pulling the strings, even when we think 
it's just a normal, regular story, you know, whether you want to call it a love story or this story or whatever it is, the thing we know about Purim is that Hashem is in charge no matter what it looks like outside. It doesn't matter who's in power, what's in power, Hashem is in charge. So I want to give us a bracha. To me, the most powerful lines in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the Haggadah, <laughs> jumping the gun. So to me, the most powerful lines in the Megillah are when Esther, when Mordechai says to Esther to go to the king and she said, and he says to her, you know, maybe this is why you got here. And she says, and she basically says, I'm going, you know, and if I, if I get, you know, like if, it, if, if my, if my efforts don't pan out, like I'm going to do the best that I can. And it definitely helps when you have a Mordechai saying, this is your moment in history. It's definitely helpful. But I, th- I feel like we need to walk around. We are so close to the Gula. This is our moment in history. And all we need to do is to step up to the plate, to, do, to be brave, to be, to be fearless, to be able to say it doesn't matter what the norm is and what I should be doing. If this is what my soul is supposed to be doing, if this is what I'm supposed to be doing, I'm going to give us all a bracha to step fearlessly into that place of what it is that our neshama needs to be fed and to step into that place of standing up for Hashem and standing up for the Jewish people because we're literally minutes from the Geula. So maybe even this Purim, we'll be able to like do it the real way. I don't even know what the real way would have been. They didn't bring sacrifices, but whatever. And we should, we should really, all of our collected efforts personally and together should really bring us to the ultimate Geula where we have no pain and we have no suffering and we have no jealousy and we have no competition and the world is filled with the word of Hashem like the water covers the sea. Good Shabbos.